Our uh, scripture reading this morning comes from Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 11. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, if any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your, your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never, never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go now to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us here this morning, for bringing us safely, and for the extra sleep that you gave some of us, or maybe all of us. Lord, we just pray that um, you would open our minds and our hearts to hear your word, Lord, to see Jesus in this text. And Father, um, we pray that our worship would glorify you. And we thank you, Lord, that you have granted your release for us, that you have given generously to us, Lord, who needed much from you. Please, Lord, be with us in this time. Please speak through me by your spirit. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So before we dive in this morning, I wanted to make another announcement. I'm the RUF International Campus Minister. My name's Terry Dykstra. For those of you who don't know, RUF International is the PCA's ministry to international students at the University of Texas. So that's what I'm called here to do. And the thing I wanted to announce is in three weeks or just under three weeks from yesterday, on Saturday, November 23rd, we're gonna be having our second international Thanksgiving event. This is where we um, get together. We did it at All Saints last year. But we give international students the opportunity to experience a Thanksgiving meal. Uh, we do that the Saturday before Thanksgiving because Mary Rose and I will be traveling, but also because many students will travel during the Thanksgiving holiday. They finally kind of have a break. They've had a lot of exams before, so they'll go to Vegas or L.A. or New York or, or wherever. So um, this is an opportunity to share with them what Thanksgiving is, what it's like, to share some of our favorite dishes. And that's where you come in. Many of you last year provided dishes for that event. Um, and we need you again. So if that's something you're interested in doing, please come talk to me or please uh, email me or contact me another way. Um, 
we had about 10 students last year and we had about 10 volunteers in addition to me and Mary Rose stick around for that. So if that is something you do want to do and end up doing, you're not obligated to stay, you don't have to stay, but you're welcome to stay if you'd like to have a Thanksgiving meal ahead of time, if you'd like to get to meet some international students and talk with them. And um, we'd just love to, to help you plug in, help connect you with some of our students and to share our favorite dishes with them. We had, again, we had 10 students last year. I'm hoping that we'll have a little more this year, but I would say if you're gonna make a dish, just make it whatever size you would normally make it for Thanksgiving. There was plenty of food last year. I'm sure there'll be plenty of food again. So uh, don't feel like you gotta make a dish for 50 people or anything. Um, we had like 150 rolls last year and only ate like half of them. So um, anyway, thank you guys who did that last year. And again, please come talk to me if that's something you're interested in doing. Um, it'll be, it was at All Saints last year. This year it'll be at Mary Cat Cohn and her husband's house. They go to All Saints, but they have opened up their home in hopes that it'll be easier for students to get there this year. Um, but I can give you more of those details. It'll be from one to three in the afternoon on the 23rd. And if that's, if you'll be busy or if you're going out of town or whatever, then this next part doesn't apply to you. But if you'll be here in Austin for Thanksgiving, and if you want to have one or a couple international students over, not all students travel, and I would love to connect you with some of the students I know. Uh, UT also has a pairing process that I can give you the link for. I think the deadline for that is tomorrow. But um, just come talk to me if you're interested in any of that or if you want more information, I can talk to you more about that and get you plugged in. But thank you guys for, for supporting us, for praying for us, um, and for being part of our ministry to international students here at UT. This morning, turning now to our sermon text, um, before we dive into it, is anybody, I might be the only one, and this might tell you guys a lot about me, but I, I tend to get annoyed when I'm on the road, maybe it's the highway, maybe it's a regular road, and you see a cop, right, and the speed limit is 70, but then he's going 50 for no apparent reason, and everybody like slows down because they don't want to be the guy to pass the cop. <clears throat> I might be alone in that, but um, usually I'm like, guys, it's not illegal to go to speed limit. Like, there's no signs, there's no nothing, like, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. Well, six years ago when I was an RUF intern at Western Kentucky University, I was driving through town, I was on a normal 45 mile an hour road, and I see this cop in front of me who's going the speed limit, but then out of nowhere kind of slows down to, I don't know, like 30 or something. And I was just like, no, not today, you're not gonna get me, I'm going exactly 45, I'm not even gonna be a little over, and so I keep going, and I pass him, and it turns out that was a foolish thing to do, because as soon as I pass him, he gets behind me, turns on his lights, and I'm just like, are you kidding? <laughs> like, I'm going exactly the speed limit. Like, what is the problem here? Anyway, so he pulls me over, and I'm not new to speeding tickets at this time, unfortunately, but again, made sure that I was not breaking the law. Like, hey, like, I'm going exactly 45. So he comes to my window and he asks why I didn't slow down, why I didn't think about passing him, but also why I didn't see the flashing school zone lights and slow down when I saw those. So that was a bummer. 
and you might wonder after reading this text, what does this have to do with the sabbatical year? What does this have to do with financial practice? How this relates to our text is, I broke the law, so I deserved justice, and I deserved to get a ticket for speeding through a school zone. Would it have been compassion to not get a ticket, or would it have been injustice? That's the question I kind of want you to think about as we go through our text this morning. Is compassion part of justice, or is it an absence of justice? I think all of us are on board with justice and compassion, but how do they fit together? How do we see that in our text this morning? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines justice as the maintenance or administration of the law, especially by the impartial adjustment of conflicting claims or the assignment of merited rewards or punishments. Basically, getting what you deserve. Reward for good things, punishment for bad things, and making things fair or making them right. Compassion, on the other hand, is sympathetic concern for others' distress and suffering with a desire to alleviate it. The campus minister that I interned for with RUF always defined compassion to us as with suffering. Whenever Jesus has compassion on somebody, he is suffering with them. And he also has the power to make it right and often does, right? In, um, in the case of the widow who lost her son, he brings the son back to life, just to give one example. But that with suffering also comes, as the dictionary tells us, with the desire to make things right. And did you catch that? Both justice and compassion, while compassion might seem soft or might seem like an absence of justice, you know, especially when we are craving justice, both of them are aimed at restoration. Both of them are aimed at making things right and making things the way that they're supposed to be. And what we see in our text today, while it is mostly addressing these things in financial terms, we see in our text today that we are guilty of sin. And because we are guilty of sin, because we are guilty of disobeying God and his commandments, we are indebted to him and we deserve justice. But thankfully, because God is just and because he does execute justice, he is also compassionate to those whose trust is in him, and we're gonna see how that plays out as we go through our text this morning. The sabbatical year shows us these things through three roles. It shows us this through the creditor, through the debtors, and through the payment. So first, the creditor. Our text begins by saying, at the end of every seven years, creditors will grant a release. They will not exact or require repayment for what is lent to a brother or to a neighbor. And again, think, like, is this just charity? Is this the absence of justice? Or is it something else? Shouldn't what is owed be repaid? I'm an oldest child. Some of you are probably oldest children. But as an oldest child and as a sinful oldest child, I am very interested in justice and fairness, especially concerning my younger brothers. I didn't want them to get to do anything or do anything before I was able to do it. And I wanted to make sure that every punishment, all discipline that was meted out was exactly the same severity and duration. But like me, 
when we're obsessed with rules, when we're obsessed with justice like this, we can and often do lose sight of the people that God has put around us and of the people that God has called us to love as he calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Other people are image bearers of God, but when we get obsessed with the rules like even those in Jesus' day did, we lose sight of people. We lose sight of restoring people, which is what both justice and compassion are aimed at. Thankfully, God knows our weaknesses. God knows that we are going to have a compulsion to be obsessed with rules and to want to check boxes and want to do well and say like, hey, look how well I'm doing. Look how well I'm obeying these laws. So he calls us and commands us in this passage to give, to be creditors lest we become obsessed with taking or with exacting what we think we deserve. God commands us and calls us to be compassionate and holy creditors, to be visibly set apart in how we give and how we treat our fellow neighbors and brothers. Looking in at verses six through eight, in verse six he says, why, why does he command this in the first place? Because God will bless you as he promised you, and he will enable you to lend to many nations, in verse six. And then seven through eight, if any should become poor in your towns, in the land the Lord your God is giving to you, in the land he is crediting to you, you shall not shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And sin is the opposite of this, right? Sin, as we know from our experience, as we know in our own lives, is exacting. It's taking. It is destroying. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins in which he outlines, as the title suggests, the sins that have become respectable to us or that we don't really necessarily repent of, but we're just kind of like, well, like, you know, everybody gets angry or everybody gets frustrated. Anger is one of those, jealousy, pride, unthankfulness, judgmentalism. He lists some others, but think about what are your respectable sins? What are the sins in your life that, yeah, you know it's bad, but hey, like, everybody does it, everybody struggles with it, free to struggle. It might be gossip, verbally destroying someone else, to take credit for yourself, to take glory for yourself. It might be a sexual sin, consuming and destroying others for your own pleasure without giving back, without any sort of relationship or context of relationship. It might even be idleness or laziness or sins of omission where we're not doing what we're supposed to do, either not doing what we're supposed to do at work, wasting our time. And that could be outside of work, that could be school, that could be home responsibilities, that could be anything. We already had a sermon on the Ten Commandments, so I'm not going to go through all the sins. But again, like, think about what things in your life, what ways are you obsessed or even content with taking or exacting, maybe even obsessed with it like I have been. All these reasons are why in verse 9 he warns us against the sin of withholding. He says, be careful lest you look grudgingly on those who would ask and who also would know with the seventh year coming, oh, I'm not going to have to repay this, but like I really am in need now. Deuteronomy warns us, do not look grudgingly on your neighbor 
lest he call out to God against you and you be guilty of sin, lest you be guilty of taking from what your brother needs and destroying them. And we might come to this text, we might hear that, and we might think, yeah, okay, but like, I want justice. Like, I'm not given any handouts. I want to be repaid. And this was obviously a real condition in the day if they have to address like, hey, don't do that. (laughs) But compassion, as this text shows us, does not mean an absence of justice. In fact, they're both about making things right. That's why in verse 4, it's stated that the goal is that there would be no poor among you. You know, the poor people, people who become poor, were not made to be poor. That is not their right condition. And justice and compassion are both aimed at making things right, making things the way that they're supposed to be. And God's will for us is that there would be no poor among us, that we would be holy in how we give and how we borrow in order for the benefit of all, not just for the benefit of ourselves. God, again, in verse 4, he will bless us in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And again in verse 6, God will bless you as he promised you. In verse 10, God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. As God calls us to be holy as he is holy, to be visibly set apart, he is calling and commanding us to be creditors because he has been the great creditor to us. He's given us our life and breath and everything that we have. He's given Israel an inheritance to possess as his children. And he has given those of us whose faith is in Jesus salvation. He has given us new life and has given us the inheritance of Jesus. Because God has credited us freely, he commands us to follow his example, to be holy as he is holy, to give freely in verse 10. And in verse 11, to open wide our hands to our brothers, to the needy, and to the poor in our land. Why? Because in verse 2, the Lord's release has been proclaimed. And we'll get to more of that in a minute. But that is a big deal. God's release has been proclaimed to us. And that is the manner in which we are to release our debtors on the sabbatical year. While God is calling and commanding us to be holy creditors, we have to remember that our default position towards him is not one of strength, is not one of already being a creditor, but our default position towards God is that we are debtors to him. What have we taken from him? What has he loaned to us, you may wonder? Again, everything we have comes from God. And again, as, we, as I've said already, sin is taking for ourselves. It's taking from others, but it's also taking from God. Because in sin, we would lay out our commands. We would lay out our plan for justice. We would put ourselves on God's throne to say, this is what is right because we are all king of our individual kingdoms. In that case, we are taking from God. We are taking what rightfully belongs to him if we're not obeying him and if we're setting the rules. And while we may think, hey, this is justice, this is right, this is what is right for me, if it's just right for me, it's fraudulent justice. It's not justice. Both justice and compassion are about making things right. 
So God commands creditors to grant release every seven years because God's release to us, to his people, has been proclaimed. God commands the sabbatical year to have compassion on our brothers and neighbors, to be holy creditors, that none would be poor. Not just financially, but spiritually, relationally. God wants us to be well and to share and love each other. And both justice and compassion are the fruit of being rooted in holiness, right? That is what our whole sermon series has been about. Of course, this practice is not an easy pill to swallow. The sabbatical year, it's obviously not a regular part of our practices, at least like mine or anybody that I know of. Um, If it is, that's a good thing. But it's probably not something that is regularly practiced now. But it is a holy and visibly set apart practice. And it's one that might seem foolish to the world, like much holy things are. Much of God's commands do seem foolish to the world. How we react to this command, how we react to this command, especially not to begrudge our neighbors who would ask in advance of the seventh year, or knowing that we are not going to be repaid if we give at this time. Whatever our gut reaction is, whatever we think about that, shows where we're rooted. It exposes where our roots are. It might be in our politics. It might be in our philosophies. It might be in our bank accounts or otherwise in ourselves and in our own abilities. Or maybe we are rooted in God himself. Another example of holy practices that might seem foolish. Today is National Sandwich Day, one of the multitude of silly holidays that seem to occupy every day of the week. Chick-fil-A, my beloved, maybe your beloved as well, sent out an email this week saying, hey, National Sandwich Day is coming up, not realizing when they sent that that it was on Sunday, which, of course, sadly for us, Chick-fil-A is closed. So they sent an apology pretty quickly after. And this came to Popeye's attention. Popeye's had a chicken sandwich that came out in August to much fanfare, sold out very quickly, and then they're bringing it back today for National Sandwich Day. I've not had it, I'm not endorsing it. If, if you like it and have had it, that's great. Tell me and I'll like try it sometime. But, so they, this email comes to their attention and they mock Chick-fil-A for, oh, hey, y'all good for sending out this email when you're closed? And Popeye's even, like one of the first pictures I saw when I was reading about this, was those highway signs, right, that have all the restaurants and, like, gas stations and stuff. The Chick-fil-A ones always say, close Sunday. Popeye's has started adding open Sunday as a way to deride Chick-fil-A, but also to say, like, hey, we're not, we're not idiots. We're open seven days of the week. We know you guys want to eat, so, so come eat here. I say all that to say Chick-fil-A is holy. Chick-fil-A is visibly set apart even when it looks capitalistically, economically foolish. The Chick-fil-A founder, Truett Cathy, um, who passed a few years ago, said of the decision when they started doing it, when they founded Chick-fil-A, closing our business on Sunday, the Lord's Day, is our way of honoring God and showing our loyalty to him. Truett Cathy said that, and Chick-fil-A still does that because he was rooted in relationship with his loving and holy God, and wanted his business to reflect that, even when it means not making as much money, even when it means 
as the Sabbath commands and was designed to do, not getting, taking a rest as God himself rested from his work after creation. Even when they are mocked by lesser chicken chains, even <laughs> when all these things are happening, and I'm not like hating on Popeyes, like it's fine. True Kathy and Chick-fil-A did this because they were rooted in God, because they knew his release. They knew that he had given them so much, that he had given them even Chick-fil-A. And so they wanted to honor God by closing on Sundays. And obviously, you know, they founded in 46. They're doing all right, right? They're doing okay being closed on Sunday and being holy. We should relate to what this passage is saying, even if we have a hard time saying like, man, if I give somebody a bunch of money, I really am going to want a return on investment, or I really am going to want to get paid back. We should relate and hope for holy creditors because we ourselves are the debtors. And scripture tells us that our debt is so great that we have no hope to repay it. There's nothing that we can do, and no, even being open on Sundays is not going to help us to repay our debt to God. I'm grateful for my wife, for Mary Rose, for many reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is that her financial wherewithal helped me to pay off my student loans pretty quickly after we got married while I was going through seminary. But in the last couple months, I've been getting emails from one of those loan companies saying like, hey, your payment's coming up, and like, panic sets in, right? Like, what? I thought I paid these off already. And thankfully, they've been mistakes, but like, I still get those emails, and I'm like, oh man, like, have I, did I just like miss one payment, and now the interest for however many years is just like, gonna kill me? You know, those have been mistakes, but the fact is, our debt to God remains. Injustice, as it's defined and as it is practiced and executed, requires repayment. And the Holy Spirit reminds us of that by convicting us of our sins. Say, hey, you are a debtor to God. You need Jesus. And God does that. God convicts our sin to bring us back to him. But also for in him, the enemy, Satan, will do it to us as well. He will remind us, hey, look, like you haven't done good enough. You are a debtor to God. And his hopes to get us to give up, to not seek God, to say, what's the point if I can't pay it back, if I'm going to continue to be a debtor to God, if I'm going to continue to have to ask for forgiveness, to ask for him to credit me with his grace and righteousness. You know, we might prefer compassion and mercy that our debt would be erased. But for it to just like go up and smoke is not justice. So how is, how can justice happen? How can God be holy if our sins are not punished? Where will our payment come from? This is the problem of evil, right? Some of you have maybe wondered this or you know people who do. How can there be a good and just God when there is evil in the world? How can there be a good and all-powerful just God when people suffer undeservedly? Wouldn't a good and holy God just destroy evil, that it wouldn't bother us, that we wouldn't suffer from it? 
The answer is yes, of course. And he will, and scripture tells us that he will finally do it, though he hasn't yet. We also know from Jesus that he has taken the first step in doing that, that he is already sovereign over death. In the weekly Bible discussion I do with students, we looked at John 11 this week. Uh, That's a passage where Jesus raises Lazarus and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is all before Jesus has died, but even then he already has authority over death. He tells Lazarus, Lazarus, come out, demonstrating his power and demonstrating his authority over death. And echoing another passage we talked about that God's sheep know his voice, Jesus' sheep know his voice as the good shepherd. And Lazarus does come out. And this is all because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Because of God's justice, he has released us from our debt. We who were debtors, we who are the least of these are released because God sent Jesus to become the very least in our place, to take on our debt. And that's why God commands us to do the same with each other, with our brothers, and with our neighbors. To do what is holy and set apart by doing what is counter to the surrounding nations. To exercise justice and compassion is very much part of what it means to be holy, to be visibly set apart. Yeah, it looks crazy. It looks financially dumb, maybe. But God has given us so much more than, and given True Kathy and, and those who own Chick-fil-A so much more than the extra like few bucks they would make by being open on Sunday. God has given us his holiness and his righteousness. Our call to worship, we even saw from Micah 6.8, God's call to us, what does the Lord require of us but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And some of you, the more observant of us, might say, well, wait, like, why isn't this extended to the foreigner in verse 3? And that's, that's a valid question, but this also shows us the manner of God's release to us. Every single one of us was a foreigner to him, was a foreigner to his grace and to his family. But by sending Jesus, by making the payment for us, he brings us into his family so that we are no longer foreigners, so that we are no longer the least of these. It's by the blood and spirit of Jesus that we become his children, that we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that this release would be applied to us. So will we take it? Will we receive this payment? Or will we insist on paying our own way? When I got pulled over six years ago for speeding in a school zone, I deserved justice, I deserved the ticket, And I was expecting a ticket that I was going to have trouble paying because I just used my tax refund to buy a new bike. So I'm nervous. I'm disappointed that I got yet another speeding ticket. And the officer walks back to my window with my license, hands it to me, and says, the only speeding ticket I ever got was in a school zone in California. Drive safe and watch for school zones. He didn't give me a ticket. He just gave me a warning. In a way, he paid the penalty for me. Should I have insisted, like, 
hey, that's great, but like, I really need to pay my debt to society so that justice can be served. <laughs> Some of you might think, well, yeah, like you're speeding in a school zone. But that, that would be the same as us, as we often do, as I often do, of saying to God, hey, look, like, appreciate Jesus, appreciate the cross, but like, let me show you by my good works. Let me show you by these things that I'm doing. Let me show you by my worth that I can make myself right. God is not interested in that. God has given us a better holiness and a better righteousness through his justice and compassion on the cross. So as we go from here, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let's seek justice in the way that our passage describes, not as some vigilante looking out for ourselves, but as going to make things right for each other, for our church and for the city, right? We want to be a family for the city of Austin. So let's do that. Let's seek justice for Austin and for those here. And let us be compassionate, knowing and sympathizing with each other that we would not lose sight of the image that God has made in all of us as his image bearers. Let's be in the business of making things right in response to the God who freely released us by making us right through Jesus. So now, let's go to him in prayer. God in heaven, thank you so much for your justice and compassion to us. Thank you for freely releasing us on the cross, Lord. Please, God, fill us with your justice, with your mercy, with your love, that we may extend it to others, Lord, to our brothers and to our neighbors. Thank you, Lord, for becoming the least, the very least in our place, that we who are foreigners, that we who are debtors, that we who are enemies might have the riches and fullness of God. Lord, hear our prayer. Please meet us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.